I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Rachel Bovard. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today we have a great flow, I feel like, from all the topics um, this week of Christmas. We're going to start with Ben asking, why is the left predicting the end of democracy? The refrain that we hear on the blue check Twitter feeds uh, from coast to coast, and I literally mean that. Um, will the right stand up for US workers? That's a question that Rachel is going to address, and we're going to transition from that to something, a sort of specific test case, um, a question of Senators Marco Rubio and Sherrod Brown, Republican, Democrat, um, asking the Labor Department to immediately investigate Amazon's labor practices. And then uh, Josh is going to close us out with the Biden White House uh, coming for the unvaxxed in uh, really intense terms, which uh, listeners have probably heard about by now, but it'll be great fodder for our conversation um, because there's so much to unpack. So with that, I will turn it over to Ben to start us off. Thanks. With the kind of overarching narrative of uh, the ruling class over the last year has been this calculus. Uh, MAGA equals racist equals domestic terrorist equals threat to the republic, or as the left likes to call it, a democracy. And we've seen lately all manner of rhetoric, whether it's the hysterical article in The Atlantic talking about the coming coup in 2024, uh, whether it's Jen Rubin talking about, I think, build back better, uh, democracy hanging by a thread, uh, Mark Elias, whose Twitter feed I recommend you look at for the unhinged mind of the leftist election lawyer par excellence. He's actually already previewing the fact that 2022 and 2024 are basically going to be decided via lawfare, at least if he and the Democrats get their way, which I think is a tell precisely that they have no desire to compete in a democratic sense in terms of majority elections. They ultimately intend to take power out of the hands of people under the guise of protecting and preserving democracy. And you know the measures that are typically raised when it comes to uh, this assault is, you know, first of all, obviously, any kind of national conservative sort of message being associated with authoritarianism by the left, um, election integrity, regulations being viewed as an assault somehow on democracy when they're precisely about upholding democracy. And we can go on and on. The Biden administration itself recently held this democracy summit where, of course, they ended up censoring a Taiwanese official in part during that summit. And essentially, they use democracy to cover up an assault on democracy when it appears that they are in political peril with 50% plus one of the country. And I think that is really the overarching message. When the left talks about democracy, it should be made clear in the minds of every American that what they're talking about is that the public is not going along with their agenda. And consequently, they are going to take whatever means necessary to thwart the will of the people, to thwart that democracy. And I think there, there are a couple other um, sort of impulses behind this new rhetorical stance about assaults on democracy, democracy hanging by a thread, et cetera, which really means they fear that they're gonna get shellacked in 2022 and then perhaps in 2024. I think another aspect of this, if you're looking at it from a nefarious perspective is this sets the conditions for ever more draconian executive orders and the like to protect and preserve democracy. And we've seen Elizabeth Warren talk about court packing, uh, all manner of other policies as well. The, the Biden DOJ, of course, going after states, uh, only red states, 
with respect to purported gerrymandering, looking into state audits of elections from 2020 and beyond. Of course, it all cuts one way. And then I think the other aspect of this that's really important, I mean, setting aside the whole fact, the context here that over the last 21 plus months, we've seen the ultimate in anti-democratic policies in terms of this public health biomedical security state that has been imposed on us without one single vote really in favor of it among the American people is this pre-delegitimizes 2022 and 2024 to some extent. I would look at it as an extension of Russiagate in that regard, because this is all about saying that if Republicans happen to win because 50% plus one support them, that in, itself, in and of itself is an assault on democracy, an assault on our most cherished values, which of course the ruling class is always happy to run roughshod over, particularly in executing this war on wrong thing that we've been talking about on this show all year. So I, I'm curious to get everyone's take on what do you think about this democracy talking point? What is the end game? Is it worth combating it? Or should we let the left twist itself into knots uh, in its projection on this subject? Well, I think you've hit on something that's really important about it, which is that they don't actually, well, I'm sure some of the more unhinged people actually do believe democracy is under threat. But the talking point and the hysteria around it justifies everything that they want to do. It, it means they can circumvent every democratic process. It means they can set up sham investigations to go after their own house colleagues. You know, it means they can, you know, talk about jailing and cutting off medical care to unvaccinated people. Like if you constantly create this fear of emergency and existential threat and psychic drama, then suddenly the guardrails of, you know, our self-government come off because they must. And it's, a, you know, it's it's a counterintuitive point because they're saying, well, democracy is under threat. So that means I must threaten democracy to protect democracy. It's this like circular uh, Ferris wheel that we can't we can't get off. Um, but that but I do think that, you know, constantly combating that uh, is important because, you know, the, the norms crowd has pushed out every possible norm and we're living, it almost feels like we're living in a time where our politics is constrained by nothing and literally is just water sloshing back and forth in a bathtub and that's not healthy at all. Yeah, I, Ben, when I hear you talk about our democracy or democracy in general, I think back to this really nice, short, crisp um, American Mind post that was written by managing editor Seth Barron back in February, I think it was, and it was just titled, What is Our Democracy? And Seth concludes his article by saying, democracy in this sense, that is a sense in which the left uses the term, where a handful of extremely wealthy and powerful insiders change rules and laws and control the flow of information may not resemble the democracy that you learned about in civics class, but is a term of art reflecting uniparty control from above. Democracy is a system owned by the people who run the country's major institutions. It's not a playground for outsiders. So, I, you know, we, you, you listen to that and you, I think you hear strong overtones of kind of Rachel's Nacon speech for starters, obviously a lot of similar themes here. But I mean, let's kind of just break that down just a little bit more. I mean, we're talking about our democracy here. Where is the democracy for the current 21st century public square? Where is the democracy? Where is the lowercase r Republican self-governance? over Facebook, Twitter, Google, Amazon, the various means by which we communicate, by which we disseminate ideas, by which businesses have access to the marketplace, by which ideas are formulated, um, civic virtue is passed down. There is no current democracy. There is no current Republican self-governance over that. And to kind of just take a broader example to kind of extrapolate to kind of woke capital and kind of the various maladies afflicting the Fortune 500 in general these days, where is the democracy? Where is the Republican self-governance 
of these massive multi-thousand employee, tens of thousands of employee corporations, Walmart, CVS, you know, every single one where Chris Rufo does an investigative, investigative report, where is the democracy of these massive institutions to say nothing of the public school bureaucracy that is inculcating complete hatred? I mean, where is the democracy as far as the school boards? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Glenn Youngkin just won a massive upset victory in the Virginia gubernatorial election. Hold aside, you know, what has been some shaky data points on the Youngkin transition team. We'll kind of table that for a future day. But he just won an election basically on the ex pushing back on the exact idea that there is insufficient democracy, there's insufficient control over woke, unaccountable public school boards. So when the left uses the term democracy, they are being completely disingenuous. They are obviously referring to exactly what you describe it as, Ben, which is this uniparty ruling class infrastructure. They have no interest whatsoever in actually restoring lowercase r Republican governance or self-accountability to we the people in any meaningful sense of the term. It's an amazingly facile sort of catch-all. It's their buzzword and it's basically like pop politics. You know, it's it's how they convince everybody that leadership, that, that we're not a republic, first of all, as we've touched on. Um, it, it's kind of that way of sort of the, the semantics and the rhetoric is actually really important. Um, and the other thing I'll just add is we spent how many years talking about norms um, and how dare anyone touch our sacred norms? Um, and this entire question, the, the sort of heightening of the stakes with the questions about the demo our democracy is hanging by a thread, um, that's just an excuse for them to break more norms. Uh, that's what they ultimately want to do. And when you heighten the stakes like that, it makes drastic actions look so much easier. And I'll, I'll come at this from the perspective of somebody on the far left briefly. Um, why do we think that there was this full court press to stop Bernie Sanders in South Carolina. Um, it's to stop, to stop Bernie Sanders in general um, and to prop up Joe Biden um, and to bring all of the forces for good together, like the, um, what, what are they, they were like the Avengers. Um, and that's, again, that's what this is. They're, they're most terrified of norms that uh, help them, not norms in general. It's about norms that are helpful to their ends. Um, and so this entire question about the demo our democracy hanging by a thread, it doesn't actually matter to them um, it, until it matters to them. It's like the entire question of what's happening in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills and suddenly these these really trendy policing strategies um, are out of control because rich people are now being targeted. Um, that's what actually matters at the end of the day. So with that, I'll, I'll toss it back to Ben for any final thoughts on the subject. Yeah, I think this is always about the ends justify the means at the end of the day for the ruling class and democracy pr provides a veneer of sort of being virtuous and noble. While, of course, these are the most anti-democratic people possible who want to usurp maximum power. And some of them, I mean, the true believers may think, well, we're successful by certain metrics. Thus, we ought to be promulgating these policies and imposing them upon people. I mean, I'm sure that they have that level of, of hubris, uh, many of them. But for the cynical ones who are really usurping power, I think this is all about a power grab. And, and the last thing I'll say is, Every time they say our democracy, when they say our democracy, we should think of that, the parallel of that being, that's like when the Chinese Communist Party calls it the People's Republic of China. I think if we could make it so that in everyone's mind, when they hear our democracy from the left, that they think of every single communist people's republic, that's, that's the paradigm by which we ought, to, we ought to think about that rhetoric. 
if they cared about our democracy, they would be so much kinder to the unwashed masses who democratically elected Donald Trump. Uh, but anyway, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, because when democracy becomes self-interested, it stops being democracy and it starts being an oligarchy. Yeah. <laughs> and we are dangerously close to that. Um, so I want to pivot a little bit and talk briefly about the strike that's going on at the Kellogg cereal plant in Michigan and sort of pivot from that to the rights relationship with labor, which is something I've been watching with a little bit of fascination. Um, so if you've been following the strike at all, it's at the Kellogg cereal plant. They just actually announced today, it's been going on since October 5th, and they announced today, I believe, that they've come to an agreement. So it was a pretty long strike. Um, over you know, kind of the traditional menu of options, right? Wages, benefits, the sort of tiered wage system they had at Kellogg, um, a whole host of things, cost of living. But what's interesting to me, you know, you saw a number of Democratic politicians go out there and sort of stand with workers, and you know, especially when Kellogg uh, corporate threatened to replace the striking workers, um, you saw Bernie Sanders, you saw Joe Biden come out and say, you know, no, you can't do that, and this sort of. I want to set this in the context of the ongoing conversation, or I don't even know if it's been a conversation. It's more like a footsie, you know, the right sort of playing footsie a little bit with like, you know, how do we, you know, embrace labor? How do we support the working class? And it's an interesting conversation to me because I think there are two realities that, you know, prevent the right from being exactly what the left is, which is like a full on embrace of whatever unions do. And those two realities are this. The first is that Big labor hates Republicans. Like, I mean, there's like a political reality that regardless of what the striking workers on the ground think or what their politics are, all of their nationally affiliated organizations, and to be clear, this was a nationally affiliated strike, those machine labor organizations hate Republicans. They, they spend money against us, like they have no interest in electing us. So there's a political reality there that I think is very important. And I don't know if labor will ever break that nexus between, you know, the, the sort of union, you know, local unions and their national organizations. But I think until they do, it's going to be very difficult for the right to strike up an, a relationship with organized labor. And, but the second is the history of labor itself, which is, you know, you know, the history of labor in America is, is a lot of justified strikes, a lot of justified organizing, and then a lot of labor getting really greedy, right? And, and pushing businesses out or in the era of right to work, not even pushing businesses into China, but just pushing them into the next door state, you know, where they can feel like they can negotiate on, on better ground. You know, you, you look so far as the, as the car companies, right? To look at companies in America that I think labor has played a destructive force. Um, you know, and I, I would say too, you know, the management of those companies agreeing to things they couldn't promise, to writing checks they couldn't cash, particularly around pensions and things like that. But, you know, it's interesting, to watch the right sort of manage this because you saw some inter really interesting polling from our friends at American Compass that came out in, I believe, September, where they, they surveyed, you know, worked with YouGov, surveyed, I believe it was like a thousand workers about, you know, what it is that you actually want from your union. And overwhelmingly, they said, we don't care about national politics. We really want them to focus on wage issues, you know, bread and butter issues. You also saw this reflected in the Bessemer strike um, in Alabama, the Amazon strike that was happening there, where a number of Republicans, and I think some people on the new right were like, no, we have to get in there and support them. But you have this national organization coming in and making it completely political. There was Black Lives Matter associations. There were all these sort of national forces brought in. in. And at the end of that, you know, the workers sort of voted down this unionization attempt. 
And when the New York Times of all publications went and interviewed them as to why, they basically were like, we didn't want the national politics. Like we actually had issues we wanted addressed. We didn't want the distraction of, you know, the summer of 2020, which was, you know, full of, of fraught politics. So I guess I wanted to sort of kick off a little bit of a conversation about, you know, is it possible for the right to have a sort of formalized relationship with labor given the political context that we live in. And, and, you know, if we do, what is it that, how do we start that conversation? Yeah. So that open. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, everything that Rachel said is very, very well said. And I think important to remember. And as I've dug deeper and deeper into uh, some of these, particularly some of these cases of striking, you look in and it's like the, the conclusion that I draw is the the conservative stance is to support them when they're being when there are legitimate grievances but not to sort of dabble in the nuances of as rachel says cases that are often very localized um and i don't think the right necessarily needs to have a uh, overall like broad left style um ideology when it comes to labor save for the fact that they do need to come away from this notion and actually let me read a tweet um <laughs> come away from this notion that there are uh that it's that it's sort of the reflexive support for business in that situation that's basically the extent of what i think um should should qualify um as the okay so here it is i saw this tweet last night and i was like what on earth how do people still think this way basically um uh, oh my goodness okay well i'm i'm failing to find the particular tweet i found the account <laughs> um which is quite a funny Thing. Um, but anyway, so the point is that this reflexive hatred of labor, this, this reflexive distrust of workers and the reflexive support for businesses. Um, the reason I like that tweet and I'll find it for the next segment is because it sort of perfectly crystallizes this response that like, this is a private business that's generating so many jobs and s is giving our economy such a big boost. Yes, <laughs> both things can be true. A company can be doing that and can still be mistreating its workers. And I think Rachel's example of Bessemer is a great one. Um, but yeah, that's what I'll say is that the more that I've looked into this, the more that I think it's probably as simple as as coming away with a um, with this this knowledge that like in some cases people are really going to uh, deserve national support and they're going to need it, but in other cases, you know, it's you just have to understand that businesses are not just instinctively kind to their workers. <laughs> yeah. So I want to start by just reading an excerpt from an, an essay from Michael Lind from last time. Michael Lind obviously is kind of a uh, more more populist essay, as we probably quote him pretty frequently in this podcast. So this is an essay at Law and Liberty entitled Labor and Management Remain Unequal from about a year and a half ago. So Lind is quoting here two kind of classical liberal icons, Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill. So Adam Smith first, quote, in all such disputes, the master can hold out much longer. A landlord, a farmer, a master manufacturer or merchant, though they did not employ a single workman, could generally live a year or two upon the stocks which they have already acquired. Many workmen could not subsist a week, few could subsist a month, and scarce any a year without employment. In the long run, the workman may be as necessary to his master as his master is to him, but the necessity is not so immediate. So, you know, that quote obviously does not necessarily sound like kind of like a lowercase orthodox supply side or like thrash labor at all costs. So John Stuart Mill, very similarly, quote, 
it is a great error to condemn per se and absolutely either trade unions or the collective action of strikes. Even assuming that a strike must inevitably fail whenever it attempted and whenever it attempts to raise wages above that market rate, which is fixed by the demand and supply, demand and supply are not physical agencies which thrust a given amount of wages into a laborer's hand without the participation of his own will and action. So I'll, I'll cut myself off there. I think you, get, you, you kind of get the idea here. So I, I, I think basically this kind of like post Reagan or kind of like Reagan era presidency where kind of like, you know, like the the strongest form version of kind of like the R. Laffer, Steve Moore kind of like supply side orthodoxy at all costs. It's kind of like retconning actually. It's kind of like a kind of like putting back onto the neoclassical economic history, a warped and distorted version of that history. I don't think kind of theoretically being kind of anti-private sector trade union, anti-private sector labor union is, is, is a quote unquote conservative principle. As far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, it's not. Um, the you know that that only goes so far though, right? I mean, Rachel's point, which is a which is a probably a pragmatically more important point, is basically so what if institutionalized um, big labor is manifestly against our interests? I don't have a good solution to that, to be honest with you. Um, I, I I would presume that Orrin Cass is devoting large swaths of his kind of public <laughs> intellectual work to trying to solve that paradox. Um, I don't I'm not going to produce an answer here on on this podcast segment, but I. I wish him all the best, and I certainly hope that I can assist in my efforts, assist his efforts however I possibly can. I think it's very clear that an important theme to watch going forward is the the breakdown between the rank and file generic labor union worker and uh, management, the, the bosses within a particular labor union. And it seems to me that there's a big divide, at least ideologically on its surface, in terms of, and I think this is where kind of like labor is actually amenable or could be amenable to uh, something like a populist national conservative agenda in that they are relative to management at least, um, more patriotic populist by nature. I think there's a cultural um, sort of affinity between kind of like MAGA generally, that looks a lot more like a labor worker, generic labor worker than like the woke elites um, and, you know, kind of the coalition, the high-low coalition that the left and the ruling class has. So I think that there is an opportunity there in terms of substantively what might be the kinds of issues where I think you could win over workers, but not the institutions of the unions themselves. Um, look, environmentalism, if you're saying that you're going to literally destroy a particular energy part of the energy sector, for example, obviously that's an area uh, that can be, a, a, you know, can provide some opportunity. I think a hawkish or a pro-American nationalist agenda with respect to communist China, breaking from communist China, I think is something that ought to resonate with every, I mean, everyone in America, but particularly with uh, labor unions and, and workers within labor unions as well. And then I think immigration, obviously, um, to the extent you have open borders and it's going to drive down wages and create this whole uh, level of competition that should not exist, would not exist in a sovereign, independent nation. I think those three issues, environmentalism, China, immigration, are all issues that could be appealing, but you still have to break kind of the stranglehold that the Democratic Party has on labor unions at the institutional level, at the boss level, and the money that flows between them. Uh, I think it, it's massive, very hard to, to compete with that. So I don't have an answer, but I do think there's a cultural affinity, and then I do think there are a few issues where uh, we really could win over labor unions with a real concerted effort. 
The last thing I'll say on this before I think we actually continue the conversation with Emily (laughs) is that this conversation on the right, I think is just part and parcel of a much larger reckoning that the right has yet to do with the consequences of globalization. Mm -hmm. You know, the labor movement that existed in the 60s and 70s is not the labor movement of today. The, The economy has changed. You know, so much has been a result of our own policy choices. So I think this is part of that conversation that needs to be had. Yeah, that's a good point, and it's a great transition because the the third segment we're going to start off here is, uh, as we said in the introduction, uh, Senator Sherrod Brown and Senator Marco Rubio, um, who I think are both best described as a progressive and a conservative, um, and progressives might quibble with that because they have a million problems with each other and with the way that they label each other. Um, but, Sounds like conservatives. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess they would quibble with that for Marco Rubio as well. Uh, but so a progressive and a conservative um, sent a letter to the Labor Department um, urging an immediate, uh, and this was to Marty Walsh, to the labor secretary himself, um, urging an immediate investigation with all of labor's resources into um, into Amazon's labor practices. The letter, and this is where we're really con- continuing the discussion from the last segment, the letter cites a whole lot from the NLRB. So if you actually read the letter itself, it's citing a lot of decisions from the NLRB. And then it goes into this thing about the tragedy that unfolded in the Illinois warehouse, uh, Amazon warehouse, where a tornado ripped through and killed um, uh, several Amazon workers. Now, that I think is a very legitimate point um, there. And, and we've been at the Federalist digging into what Amazon uh, may have been negligent in when it came to that particular case. And it's a good example that when you're sort of treating your employees like widgets, um, you may be really ill prepared uh, when there's a, a serious emergency um, that emerges. And that I think is a completely legitimate point. Now, I'm assuming Sherrod Brown's staff, um, and I'm hoping this was a Rubio staff, um, went in and put all of these different points from the NLRB into this letter, citing different labor practices. And I think there are there have been there's been a lot of reporting um, about what Amazon does wrong. Um, and, you know, you have the stories of workers famously peeing in bottles and how widespread that is. We don't really have a good idea. Um, but in Bessemer, the story was that all, there, there weren't a ton of really specific sort of quibbles over benefits or anything like that. It was people felt like they were being treated like machines. They felt like they were treated like robots um, and they had a hard time finding bathroom breaks and they had a hard time just feeling human. Um, So I think there are really legitimate things. But when you get to this question of including the NLRB as though its investigations are gospel truth, well, the realignment, I think, becomes a lot more difficult. I'm sure Rubio just had to say, yes, NLRB, they're correct. And this gets to the conversation that we should continue here. I think this letter is great because I think there's serious evidence of negligence on Amazon's behalf. They are a huge employer like Walmart. And so their labor practices should be held to the highest scrutiny because it affects a lot of people um, around the country, not just in one state, not just in one locality, but around the country. So we should hold them to account. It's a product a lot of people use. We should be paying attention to their labor practices. Totally fair game. But the NLRB 
is uh, not a great institution. It's a job-killing institution, um, much like the labor unions themselves. It is anti-conservative. And so it's, it gets this question of, to protect workers, um, we're not going to be able to sort of cleanse these institutions of their ideological corruption. Um, and that's something Bill McMorris has written about at the Free Beacon that like union workers feel no, they don't feel like they're represented by their larger organizations increasingly. The question then that I'll throw up into the group is, is this an example of, of how this is kind of increasingly impossible? Like are Republicans just to, supposed to start treating the NLRB as though it's a great organization because they want to posture as pro-labor? This is exactly like the, the dilemma that I run into again and again. It's like the brick wall that exists in any conversation that you have about the right and labor, because it's the, it's the, it's the I think, very genuine desire to create a policy that actually you know, supports workers to, to wade, wade into this territory in ways that we haven't been before, and yet running right into the politics of it. Because the politics of it contort every national institution from, you know, big labor, the machine itself to the National Labor Relations Board, which to Emily's point, like is widely politicized, you know, widely viewed as harassing business, you know, because there's two missions, right? You do want enforcement, right? You want law enforcement when someone's really breaking the law. But what you, we, that's not increasingly what we see at NLRB. We just see harassment of businesses. We see them shutting down, you know all you know many practices that are are you know fine in many cases we saw them take seriously a case against the federalist for like a tweet by ben dominich like this is not a serious organization if i was subpoenaed yeah like, <laughs> i was subpoenaed by the nlrb over that tweet because of a tweet that said if federalist employees unionize i'll send them back to the salt mines like come on like Matt Bruning filed a lawsuit and it was taken seriously like that that just cannot be a thing so this is the thing that has to break and you know I think when in my personal in my conversations with, with Oren about this, you know, we talk about, well, you know, perhaps the right just needs to start its own labor organizations because the ones that exist simply just are not sufficient. So uh, these are difficult conversations. I again like to kind of play off where I, I was in the previous segment. I'm not gonna have like a grand theoretical answer here, obviously, but I guess just one slightly different way of thinking about this, and we've talked about this on previous podcast episodes, obviously, is you know, look, I, I, especially as far as the NLRB is concerned, as far as kind of the administrative state is concerned, as far as kind of the deep state itself is concerned here. Um, I mean, shouldn't we be trying to walk and chew gum at the same time here, right? I mean, we can simultaneously be trying to appoint, you know, quote unquote, principal jurists who will kind of um, restore the Schechter poultry case to kind of whip, whip out an obscure 1930s era kind of case favored by, um, you know, George Mason Law School libertarian admin law types. We can simultaneously try to do that while trying to kind of, you know, to borrow the Vermilion phrase to integrate from within, right, and kind of like get our people and put them in positions of power to wield the levers of power to achieve our desired substantive ends, right? I mean, that obviously is kind of one of the kind of the um, overarching purposes, of course, of Saurabh Sharma, Nick Solheim's American Moments Group, good friends of ours, um, among other kind of kind of like younger kind of quote unquote new right orgs in general. So. I, I, I guess that's kind of the closest thing that I can think of to a remedy here. I totally agree that the NLRB in its current state is not exactly a paragon of, uh, of competence, let alone a paragon of, of conservatism or anything like that. But the same could be said about so many agencies. I mean, like, think about kind of the broader swath of what constitutes the federal government and what constitutes Article 2 today outside of like the White House. I mean, can you guys think of like a single 
agency that um, we would say is filled with lots of good actors. I, I mean, I can't. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, Angela Cotavella, may he rest in peace before he passed away, wrote time and time again, just abolish the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the entirety of the intelligence community. And those traditionally are kind of the, you know, those, those are traditionally the agencies that conservatives used to kind of hold in high regard, right? I mean, the State Department, DOD, now these, so look, the NLRB, it's not good. Um, I mean, the fact that Emily is subpoenaed is uh, to, to call that a joke would be an understatement, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, you know, look, I mean, as like a lawyer, I tend to think of like, I, I look like the problem and try to think of like what the proper remedy is to match that problem. And one possible remedy is kind of this two pronged dance where we're trying to simultaneously both kind of shrink from a jurisprudential aspect, the breadth and the depth of the deep state, while at the same time trying to basically fill it with our people who can weaponize its powers. Yeah, I agree. That's that's practically the the right approach to it. And you know, I also think the the right way to sort of create wedges uh, over these labor related issues is look, it's right on both the politics and the merits to say in this particular instance, a company is treating its employees unfairly, and thus obviously they should be investigated. There should be real consequences to it while at the same time saying we're not anti-business or pro-business, you know, as in big business, we're simply for Americans, for America. Like taking that sort of framework, I think is, is the right one. It doesn't mean that you have to say, we agree with the NLRB on practically anything, but they can be right on a particular issue. And so I think from that perspective on both the politics and the merits, the right approach is to pick and choose uh, where we choose to intervene because it's consistent with our principles and it's consistent with America's national interest. And on that point, I will say in terms of the hierarchy of issues associated with Amazon, which clearly makes Amazon fair game on this. Of course, there was a report out this week, I'll go back to my China hobby horse from Reuters, where it said, and I'll quote directly from Reuters' report here, that Amazon's China operation and the investigation into it showed that the company has survived, I'm quoting here, and thrived in China by helping to further the ruling Communist Party's global economic and political agenda, while at times pushing back on some government demands. And it goes on to talk about the fact that Amazon is essentially censoring uh, comments and ratings of some of Xi Jinping's writings and speeches. So there is no more deserving target uh, from both the right and the left uh, than Amazon. And so once again, the politics and the merits are, are ripe here for pursuing them in this instance, and I'm sure many other corporations as well. And before I toss to Josh, I have found the tweet, the famous tweet from the segment uh, that Rachel was leading. Um, and I don't know who this account is, but they tweeted and it only has two likes, but I, I just thought it put it so perfectly. This is in, in uh, regard to the Rubio letter. Why are they investigating the labor practices of a business that powers our economy, brings consumers the goods they want at incredible convenience, and generates trillions of dollars in wealth for investors? The adversarial attack Congress takes to business is unacceptable to me. And this is from a, a Reagan, I guess, fan account. Um, but I think that just puts it really perfectly. That was just the reason that I wanted to use that tweet is because it's just a good example of exactly how the Republican Party used to think about these issues. Why would we investigate a business that is doing so much good? Both can be true. It can be true that this business is, is generating a lot of wealth and boosting the economy and that it is also treating its workers poorly. And I just think that's the mentality. If we can sum up these two segments, that's the mentality at the very least that needs to be sort of shattered um, from uh, on the right. And so with that, I'll toss to Josh. Are, are we sure that that's not an Amazon bot account? <laughs> it, it does seem body, but I don't think it is. <laughs> well, never 
never never assume that anything like that is not just a D Jeff Bezos, you know, right wing and non deep state operation of sorts. Mm -hmm. But um, let's transition to the story that has gotten a lot of attention on Twitter, but I think it's worth discussing just because of just how frankly just galling and uh, just disgusting for lack of a better word that it is here. So this past Friday on December 17th, there was a press briefing at the White House led by a man named Jeffrey Zentz. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, although at the same time, I don't particularly care. Given the substance of what he said, I'm happy to actually to mispronounce his name. So he is the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. He is the direct successor to Deborah Burks here. So this was um, at roughly 11.15 a.m. in the morning last Friday or so. Here was an excerpt from Mr. Zen's press briefing with respect to the current state of the, the, the fight against COVID-19 in the U.S. So he says, quote, our vaccines work against Omicron, especially for people who get booster shots when they are eligible. If you're vaccinated, you could test positive. But if you do get COVID, your case will likely be asymptomatic or mild. And here's the money part here. Quote, we are intent on not letting Omicron disrupt work and school for the vaccinated. You've done the right thing, and we will get you through this. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your families, and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. So, um, look, I mean, is this the United States in the year 2021, soon to be 2022, or is this Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union in 1933, at kind of like the height of like the Ukrainian famine? I mean, like I literally, at some point, like you, you just can't tell the difference here, right? Um, it kind of just confirms the absolute worst, I think of what a lot of us have been saying all along also about the vaccines, right? Um, I, I mean, from, from from day one, there has been, um, and, and just as a slight necessary correction here, um, I, I, when I'm using the term famine, and like, sorry, it, just to clarify the record there, it obviously was not an actual famine there. Okay, it was a it, it, it was a genocidal operation by the Soviet regime. So, um, but to get back to the point here, this is exactly what many of us have been saying all along. So there kind of was a contingent, obviously, of kind of, I think, like more libertarian-minded folks who kind of from day one were like, you know, individual liberty, individual liberty, you know, lockdowns, mandates, all of that. And it's true, obviously, okay? I think I, the NACOM perspective, I can kind of, um, you know, oversimplify just a little bit here. Individual, individual liberty is obviously a good thing, okay? It is part of like, it is part of like the multifaceted common good. It is, it is important as an end to limited, to a limited extent to its own right, and is also kind of important as an instrumental means to secure the substantive blessings of liberty, such as community, religion, faith, solidarity, all of that. But kind of hold the theoretical aside here. I think a lot of us in kind of like the Nakani, more kind of more popular school of thought, for lack of a better word, a, a large swath of our arguments against kind of the vax mandates since day one was that something like this would happen that someone would get there on their high horse and effectively, effectively try to separate us into a two-tiered society, which is really not all that different, obviously, than what, we're, than what we're literally seeing play out in Austria, in Australia. There were harrowing images just the other day, actually, in Brooklyn, in New York City, of an unvaccinated man trying to order something at a restaurant. There were like five NYPD cops that came in there and just beat the man and literally beat him to the ground, forcibly escorting him from the premises here. Societies historically do not end well when they kind of whip out some sort of kind of ID card, like literally an ID card, as the case may be in the case of vaccination cards, and effectively saying that if you have this card, you are allowed XYZ privileges. If you do not, then you are shunned. You are not allowed to kind of eat out at a restaurant. You are not allowed to go to the gym. You are not allowed to go to school, whatever. 
And it's really utterly just terrifying here. And it, it, it is manifestly contrary to solidarity, to kind of um, a, a, a NACOM perspective and kind of like the national common wheel and the common good, because this two-tiered society is literally the exact opposite of what we should be striving for. This is, it, it really is starting to look in a lot of ways here. I'm not exaggerating when I say this, obviously, like the antebellum period and kind of the 1840s, the 1850s here. You know, the Missouri Compromise of 1819 lasted for about 30 years, but it was ultimately unsustainable, that divide between free states and slave states here. And I, I just genuinely wonder whether when this rhetoric is coming on high from, from, from utter fanatics, from ghastly ghouls like Jeffrey Zentz, whether this current divide that we have here between what, what are the modern manifestations of kind of free states and slave states, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I, I wonder how long that is sustainable, honestly, in its current form here. Um, so that's kind of a negative black pill take, obviously, uh, but it's hard not to be black pilled from what we just heard from Jeffrey Zen. So I'm happy to kind of throw it out there. Maybe, maybe, maybe one of you guys has a slightly more optimistic twist on this pretty foolish rhetoric. I mean, the, the, they, I just, I saw this and, and it just blew my mind th that it's cloaked in such religious rhetoric. It was literally like sanctification through vaccination. Otherwise we'll see you in hell. Like that was basically like the thrust of the statement. And, you know, this is why I constantly do battle with this sort of like position that like the true conservative argument is that local, you know, communities should be able to decide if they want to have, you know, vaccine mandates. Like, no, no, this has crossed the line into literal ideological and, and medical subjugation to an extent we've never experienced before in America. This has to be banned. This cannot be allowed. This is an encroachment, the likes of which I just don't, I've never seen in my lifetime, you know, here in the United States in terms of like pushing, you know, medical, you know, removing medical, you, you removing your medical choices, forcing you to, to vaccinate yourself repeatedly, uh, and then putting all measure of public life, you know, aw away from you, unless you do that, like this cannot be allowed. So the, uh, the right has to push back forcefully on this. And I, I cannot emphasize this enough. The true conservative position is not to say, well, if they want to subjugate their communities, they can No, the whole thing should be banned. And that should be the position of the right on this going forward. Yeah, um, the, it's, it's a sort of a glimpse at when you had all the Lincoln Project people coming out and saying, this is really good, this is a good message, which actually happened. Um, they, they sort of were quote tweeting it and saying, this is a good message. Um, it's, a, it's an example of how out of touch our sort of, gosh, I hate saying that because it's so cliche, but it's so true. This is the opposite of a message that is going to get people vaccinated. I mean, it all you're doing is making people less interested in getting vaccinated because you're treating this as a character defect um, instead of a choice. And it just springs from a place of disrespect. And I think they would say, yes, that's true. I do not respect this decision. Um, but you have to, because it's one that people are making in good faith. Um, and they're, they're making it by the millions in good faith. And so to not have um, the, the muscle or the, a bone in your body that's capable of actually addressing that with some semblance of competence on the one hand, that's actually going to get people vaccinated. And on the other hand, with respect, um, it's, it's a, I think, a sign of how deeply deeply um, divided the elites are from uh, regular people. Um, and it's just a lovely holiday message from the Biden White House. 
It, to, to me, it, it seems like we're, we've been living in a bad dream for 21 months in terms of, and I think this, and this, and also the recent case at the Supreme Court where uh, specifically with respect to New York's mandate for healthcare workers that they be vaccinated with no religious exemption, but a medical exemption, perfectly illustrated the fact that scientism has become uh, the ultimate aim, really the ultimate excuse or legitimization for wholly anti-American, un-American slew of totalitarian policies in which scientism has actually been elevated above religion in this country. That's one of the many pernicious manifestations of this draconian le level of totalitarian policies that have been imposed over the last 21 months. Um, I think it's amazing, by the way, this comes against the backdrop of reporting that the federal government's own data on the percentage of people who have actually received one vaccine shot itself, they've cooked the books on. So the revelations came out. We have a, we have the supposedly the federal government has accurate numbers in terms of number of shots that have been administered. But many of those have been multiple shots for the same individual. People have been vaccinated a couple of times and then boosted and such. So the number of actual Americans who have received one shot is significantly lower by the millions, according to reporting, than the administration has put forth, which is another example of the administration's failure of their policy, uh, their censorship and attacks on dissenters to actually coax those people into complying with what the regime says. And that's one of the reasons why I think they have to show such contempt and such loathing for these tens of millions of Americans, because their unwillingness or their challenge of the regime's policies is basically a vote of no confidence in them and a deserved vote of no confidence in them, by the way, whatever your perspective on vaccines. It's also worth noting, by the way, that this comes against a backdrop of it clearly being the case. And we know because authorities have been saying this even dating back to July of this year in the Washington Post, that when it comes to vaccines, they do not prevent transmission. So once you say that a vaccine does not prevent transmission, and of course there are studies showing different levels of transmissibility rates, you can have those debates, but once it becomes, this does not stop an infection from spreading period full stop, it becomes an inherently personal decision. So if you're setting aside the libertarian arguments, the natural rights arguments, the fact that you have ownership over your body, and of course opposing the totalitarian aspects of this, even on the science, so-called, this argument does not hold water. So at this point, it is self-evident in so many layers when you have the obfuscation, the goalpost shifting, the changing of the definition of what vaccinated means, what immunized means, the policies are working, but you just got to keep getting more jabs, et cetera, that we don't have full data that the Pfizer trials, the FDA is sitting on for you know, decades to present the evidence to us. All of that points to the fact that none of this is rooted in science. This is all politics, period, full stop. And when it all becomes politics, it, it, it's self-evident that the attacks on dissenters, the censorship, and the coercion are all about power and control, not about public health, so-called. But the exploitation of public health as a basis to usurp more power and control, I think, is the story, may, maybe the seminal story uh, of 2021. Uh, I think if the left had realized that public health could be such a powerful tool over environmentalism, they would have ditched climate change, global warming, et cetera, a couple of decades ago. And where is the right on this? Because this is like, of all the seminal issues, and we talk about a lot of them, 
every single right has basically been abrogated in the last 21 months. So if you're not fighting on this issue, you're not on the playing field, period, full stop. Any final thoughts on that subject before we go to general final thoughts? Awesome. All right, who wants to start us off? I can start and I, you know, I'll just say to, to sort of even just pivot off of what Ben said, like so much of what I think we've discussed today is what the right has to have answers to these, to these things to remain relevant. Like I just keep coming back to that tweet Emily read. <laughs> it's like, you know, what do you mean? Like a business is producing things, therefore it is, you know, saint-like. And, and that, you know, that, in, that instinct, and I think that sort of old valence of the Republican party and, you know, that has served us, I think, well in a lot of cases, but we are living in a time when, you know, there's unprecedented assaults on, you know, pe working people, not just through labor practices, although through them, but also through, you know, our public health policies and this desire to, to, of the elite to sort of, you know, subjugate the rest of us. And I think that the right has to be able to respond to these questions more than anything else, more than sort of macroeconomic policy, more than like, you know, the theory of tax cuts, like this is what makes our party matter, or as a movement, what makes us matter. And in many ways, these are political questions. And so I think, you know, as we rethink these, you know, these questions, I think it's just a really important conversation that has to be ongoing, not just here on this podcast, but for the political right. So I'm, I'm happy to go next here. Um... So I, kind of in the same valence or the same like broader theme, I guess, of kind of the labor themes that have weaved their way through this podcast. Um, I was in Boston this past weekend for a good friend's wedding, and I got lunch on Sunday before fly back to Florida with Julius Krein, the editor of American Affairs, who, you know, friend of friend of the NatCon project, obviously. Um, you know, I think uh, Yoram Hazoni is on the advisory board of American Affairs. Rachel was on the same panel as Julius at, at NatCon. So anyway, Julius and I were talking here, and at one point I kind of asked him, I was just like, what, from your perspective, is the single most uh, critical issue facing the United States right now? And basically, without blinking, he, he gave the answer that I thought he would give, um, you know, given his kind of perch as the editor of a publication like American Affairs, which which was deindustrialization de and kind of, you know, bringing back um, manufacturing, bringing back critical supply chains, things, things of that nature here. And, you know, I, I kind of just think back because I look, I mean, I majored in economics in, in college, right? I mean, I, I remember kind of like, like, kind of like the, well, like the orthodox, like uh, GDP equation looks like on like a neoclassical economics chalkboard here. And I almost think that I was kind of like hoodwinked and bamboozled to an extent right here. And, that, and that's not to kind of like cast like a wide, you know, disparaging kind of, um, you, you know, black cloud, obviously, on the entire economics profession or, or professoriate. But I, I, I really think it is just deeply important to kind of emphasize here that economics, just like science, obviously, and kind of the trust the science, Fauci, Burke's context, all of these various disciplines only go so far here. Um, we, we do not elect politicians. The kind of classical art of politics, going back to the Greeks, the Romans, even the Bible itself, obviously, the art of politics is not about enacting someone who will single-handedly decide to implement a vision of governance that is based around kind of the underlying inputs of one discipline, whether that, whether that discipline is economics, medicine, anthropology, sociology, science, whatever. No, we elect politicians to kind of look at all of the various inputs there and ultimately do what is best 
or we the people for the common good for the national interest kind of put in your term of choice there right so this has been the hubris of the trust the science crowd obviously from day one obviously um hold aside that the science obviously is not as clear-cut to put it mildly as what burke's fauci jeffrey zentz this utter clown and what all the others have said hold that aside the notion that we should single-handedly just quote unquote implement the science is garbage the same way that we should single-handedly implement kind of the blindest kind of offshore at all costs three cheers for capitalism you know blindest form of libertarian fundamentalism that also is garbage so uh, look i i think where we are is currently at a crossroads where we're trying to recover the art of prudence recover the art of kind of pragmatism and it's difficult because there aren't kind of easy sloganeering punchlines for this. We're kind of inherently kind of like in like the middle ground weeds here. But um, look, I, I mean, to kind of take it back to the GDP thing there, I mean, for, for, from a certain perspective of GDP, you know, prostitution and pornography might kind of, um, you know, help GDP, right? Like if San Fernando Valley in California has a quote unquote thriving pornography industry, I'm sure that boosts California's definition of its state's own gross domestic product. Suffice to say, that does not boost California's common good, though. So there is a huge distinction here. Yeah, so I think Rachel made a point about how the right has yet to reckon with globalization and a lot of our troubles to have a very coherent response to uh, labor issues are is part of that. I actually think that's 100% true and reminds me that uh, all of us have yet to reckon with, I think, high the, the sort of high technological advancement that's happened over the last 10 years, let alone the last 100 years. And I really mean that. We come back to that um, often on this podcast, but I think that's very true in that, you know, American Compass just put out a survey about um, how people want their public school systems in the poll. They say they want their public school system to be less focused on college and more about preparing their students to be good members of the community. Um, and that's sort of where what's been lost in all of this, in deindustrialization, in industrialization, all of this, it's community. Um, and to sort of see the right drifting towards that explanation or that antidote um, since it's Christmas week, I'm going to say I think that's very positive because God, community, these are the things that are the antidote to modernity and to the chaos of technology and to the chaos of globalization where we are confronted with the horrors of every corner of the globe in vivid detail at any given moment of life. You can see what's happening anywhere. Um, and it's, it's horrible in so many cases. And that's sort of psychologically and just as a human being, a very difficult thing to, to reckon with. And I think that's very true in uh, across so many issues. Um, labor is a good example of how we have yet to sort of keep a pace with technological development. But I think in general, that's a good thing to keep in mind as we celebrate uh, a non-modern holiday, an anti-modern holiday, um, and to, to think, you know, as we are with our families in a way that is sort of ancient um, and in our communities that we really should be drawing towards those antidotes and those sort of very instinctual comforts um, because they're, they're, they are real, they are real solutions um, and they are available to us. We don't need to invent them. Um, they're right here. Uh, it's, it's tough to, uh, to do any better than that. So I'll, I'll just briefly say, um, one positive, one negative, and then a couple positives for uh, for on my account to finish up here. 
Um, it, it's worth noting, especially for those who cling to the idea that the courts are going to be our salvation, that Joe Biden in his first year, I think just racked up his 40th successful confirmation of a federal judge. Uh, great job by the Republicans halting that process. Uh, that puts him at the most since Ronald Reagan, I believe, in the first year of a presidency, not really being talked about and obviously going to be a disaster uh, for decades to come with the federal courts. Um, but on the plus side, I will say, in spite of all of the disastrous things that we talk about on this show every single week, still the left's agenda in practice is utterly collapsing, totally unpopular. And one of the reasons I believe they're clinging to these totalitarian measures or may have to relent over the next year from some of these measures is precisely because they know they are in for total rejection, repudiation by voters. So it's kind of an interesting and uh, cosmically hilarious paradox that we face of uh, everything collapsing around us, yet at the same time, this creating a massive opportunity, which I do not have any faith Republicans will necessarily seize per se, but for us, it certainly provides an opportunity to fill a void. It's, it's a hugely target-rich environment, and so if you're going to try to take a silver lining out of what we're grappling with, it's that. And, and the last thing I'll say is just uh, a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays to all of our stalwart viewers and listeners out there. <laughs> well, on behalf of Ben, Rachel, Josh, and Josh, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.